What do you wish for? A new beginning? An old love? That abstract concepts can have feelings? Bear your soul with us and welcome to Channel 8 and a Half. Hello and welcome to Channel 8 and a Half, a podcast about film, television, and pop culture. My name is Andrew Hanna. I am Joe Galino. Joe, how you doing this week? Happy New Year, man. I am doing quite well. It is a good new year. And as we'll see a little bit later, we're talking about a movie called Death to 2020, something a lot of people really want. How was your new year? It was good. I stayed home. I chilled. I worked. Speaking of great beginnings to 2021, there were a lot of, a lot of new releases over the New Year's slash Christmas holiday. They kind of crammed them all at the, at the very end of the year. Yeah, it feels like every studio held off hoping all of this would end and they finally just relented and released it all at once. So what we're going to be talking about today is the aforementioned Death to 2020, which is a Netflix original mockumentary, kind of a short, Mm -hmm. not quite feature length, not quite a short. It's about 70 minutes. You might have seen it on your Netflix homepage. They're pushing that real hard. Then we're going to do a brief thing about another Netflix original midnight sky which is a new george clooney joint which you saw and i did not yeah so we're going to do a little bit of a side about that we're then going to go into the big pixar release soul but first let's talk about one of the more contentious movies released this year not just because of how it was released but the film itself and that's wonder woman 1984 And I'm quite interested, Andrew, in your reaction to Wonder Woman 1984 as someone who hates, with a fiery passion, all superheroes and everything to do with them. Not true. I don't hate all superhero movies because I love this. That's a lie. You're lying. (laughs) Do not lie to me, sir. This was the biggest mess of a movie I think I've seen in a long while. It's, It's a very muddled movie. I will give you that. Muddled is an understatement. A lot of Warner Brothers was was riding on Wonder Woman 1984 to basically save Warner Brothers movie business for this year. Why would you bank on that? Because the first movie was very popular and it was the best of the DC EU movies Uh, by a wide margin, I think. Yeah, I would say the Joker is the best, but I I don't know if they're making that officially part of the universe. I mean, it's got DC comic book characters in it, but not the DC EU of the Justice League movies. That was more of a standalone picture Mm because they already have their Joker with the Suicide Squad, Jared Leto Joker, and uh, then... I was hoping they'd replace him with Phoenix. But then again, I don't think Phoenix would actually sign up for multiple superhero films. Well, James Gunn is going to do The Suicide Squad, which is supposed to come out later on this year, which is a <laughs> sequel to Suicide Squad that everyone hated with Will Smith. Are oh, you confused okay. yet? Because one's yeah. called Suicide Squad and one's called The Suicide Squad. It's not like anybody's going to get that mixed up. And the follow-up will, of course, be A Suicide Squad. Yeah. I mean, really, if you just put anything in front of Suicide Squad, yeah. apparently Warner Brothers is all in. <laughs> Jesus. But the first Wonder Woman movie, which came out a couple of years ago, I think is widely regarded as the most popular and the best of the DCEU movies. Did you like it? I did like it. I thought it was a fun tone. It was a traditional superhero movie. It's not like it did anything unique or groundbreaking when Steve Rogers, oh wait, I'm sorry, not Steve Rogers, uh, Steve Trevor sacrificed himself at the end. It's not like they ripped that off from Captain America or anything. Well, I was going to say the first one felt exactly like Captain America. It basically was up to even the ending when literally a guy named Steve sacrifices himself in a plane. It's the exact same, but it was still fun. And I still like Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman. The casting of her as that character, she carries that movie. She carries this movie and the relationship between those two characters are the best thing about both of them, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree with that. I love Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman and it feels like she was meant to play that part in the way that Robert Downey Jr. was meant to play Iron Man. She just fits it so well. But I I don't know if I like her yet as an actress. And that could just be the writing and no fault of her own. But in terms of the physical language, specifically in fight scenes, I believe that she is capable of everything she's doing. And the way she moves is just so graceful and swift. Mm -hmm. It's so satisfying seeing the way that she moves through a fight scene. But performance-wise, as far as acting, I'm still not completely sold. They're also not asking her to be De Niro and Raging Bull either. Or, fine, to put an equal gender on it. They're not asking her to be Meryl Streep in Devil Wears Prada. See, that's more comedic. 
But, you know, they're not asking her to do that. I'm not expecting her to do that, but she can give a better performance, at least in the dialogue scenes. You don't need to give an Oscar-winning performance. You don't, and that's why I think that she's really great, is that she's incredible physically. She's got charisma and charm in a way that most movie stars do not. She is a movie star on the screen. She doesn't need to be the greatest actress in the world. She's great at being Wonder Woman. I agree. She is great as Wonder Woman, but the dialogue scenes, with the exception of a few, are a bit lackluster. So let's get into it, shall we? In case you don't know, Wonder Woman 1984 takes place in 1984. Ah. I know, right? They're turning the clock forward, what, 70 years? Because the first one was World War I. Wonder Woman is now an archaeologist working for the Smithsonian or some sort of... No, you're right. It's a Smithsonian. No, I was going to say some sort of archaeologist or archaeologist adjacent type of profession. Her and Kristen Wiig say a bunch of things that they do. With a lot of like archaeologist, endocrinologist, that's actually a doctor. I don't really know, but there's a list of things that she does clearly. And whatever it is she does, she deals with artifacts and Indiana Jones stuff. The two main villains in this, because the plot is difficult to sort of sum up. Essentially, she finds an artifact, comes into contact with an artifact called the Dream Stone that allows the person holding it to make a wish and that wish comes true. But it's a monkey's paw scenario. That wish has consequences, as these things do. The two villains in the movie, Pedro Pascal and Kristen Wiig, are definitely not presented as villains at the very beginning. I mean, you know they are, because most people have seen the trailer. And Pedro Pascal plays this, you know, sort of Gordon Gecko mixed with a televangelist type of con man. And it all kind of coalesces in these people making wishes that grant them power that then goes too far. And then Wonder Woman has to stop them. That is the main plot, I would say, of the movie. Would you disagree? No, that's as well as you can explain that plot. Because it's a thing that I was trying to succinctly figure out, (laughs) sum it all up, and go, okay, two people make wishes and get immense amounts of power and then go too far. Now, Wonder Woman, or I should use her non-Wonder Woman name, Diana Prince, also makes a wish and says, I wish that Steve Trevor, the man that I loved from World War I, would come back. And so she also makes a wish and the ramifications of that wish impact her physically as well throughout the movie. And that is where the conflict all comes in both externally and internally for her. All of that preamble aside, what did you think? Aside from it was laughable. There was no logic whatsoever. It didn't follow any of the rules it set for itself. It was a complete and utter mess. And it was awkward in a lot of moments. That being said, I think before I can get into all of that, I'm going to put a spoiler alert here. Time codes in the description as always. First off, there was no logic when it came to the monkey's paw. Because it takes something from you, Andrew. And sure, they say it takes from you that which is special about you. But why then can Pedro Pascal later dictate what he wants in return for a wish granted? Mm -hmm. And then Pedro Pascal wishes that he could be the stone himself so that people have to wish through him which also doesn't make sense. Unclear. Why is he dying? Why is he bleeding from the ears? And then, okay, Pedro Pascal goes to Egypt. Boy, does he. Geopolitical scene in this movie. They play real fast and loose with a whole bunch of things. Yeah, they just run amok all over the world. Like, what are you doing? (laughs) There's a point where one of the, first of all, they they don't get the politics of Egypt correct at all. They use a, a completely different political system for who gets what in Egypt, like actually in Egypt, you'd probably know better than I would. But A, that's not how politics work there. B, you can't just say, I want my land back. And then he's like, granted, you got it. Not how it works either. There's a whole bunch of things in this. When he says, I want my land back, I don't understand why a wall is erected and then keeping out the poor people. And I'm just like, wait, what? So did, all the, so did all the people within the wall get magically like transported outside the wall? I have <laughs> no clue. And then like, why does Chris Pine go into another man's body when everything else just appears? Oh, that one actually didn't bother me. <laughs> why not? It should bother you. <laughs> you know what? It's, it's funny. In the but- beginning, that didn't even bother me. I was like, okay. That's cool. So wishes have to come true through a series of logical means. Yeah. Maybe he was just reincarnated into this man. That's that's exactly what I thought. I was like, his mind and his soul go into this guy, but on the exterior, he still looks like some guy. But then they do the the panning around shot where you go behind Diana's head, and then on the right side, it's that guy, and then on the left side, it's Chris Pine's face. And I'm like, and it was early enough in the movie to that point where I was like, yeah, it's fine, whatever. It <laughs> was enough. early enough in the movie 
to establish a set of rules that they threw away later on in the Especially movie. Because really, the I, president... I'm going to tell you, my journey with this movie was, was a real roller coaster because I actually didn't mind it and I, I enjoyed it for a solid hour. Unfortunately, this movie is two and a half hours long. But the very beginning, like the first 10 minutes, infuriated me. Infuriated me. because really? it, Oh, it did. I, I was so angry at it. The first Why? 10 minutes, more than anything else. Even the bafflingly not great conclusion. No, because the conclusion is superhero CGI nonsense. And I'm used to that. But the beginning establishes Diana as a little girl. And she's in these sort of Olympic games, right? And she is... She's really small. She's what, eight years old, however old Something she is, like that, yeah. 10 years old. And she's going up against these, what are essentially Olympians. They don't establish the rules of the game, for one. This is another games scenario where they have spectators in an arena. Yes. And then everybody okay. runs outside and can't see. Yeah. yeah. No, but that bothered me it, so they, much. They do it in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, too. And I'm yeah. like, why do you have spectators in the stands when they can't see underneath the water in Harry Potter. Why do you have a spectator sport that can't be spectated? Exactly. And then... The rules are established, though. Or, or maybe they're not established, they're implied. What bothered me was the arrows. So they're riding on horseback and they're shooting the arrows through the hoop. And yeah. then the, the banner comes down after each yeah. person has shot the arrow through the hoop. Now, Diana misses a checkpoint and yeah. doesn't shoot an arrow through a hoop, but is not penalized at that point which they did not establish that she they have the to hit the but they have to hit the checkpoint. So it seems to me at that point that the checkpoints, the arrows don't matter. Well, that's the thing is it could be one of two things is that they're doing it for the sake of the spectators so that they know their progress, which is what I thought. Or in the way that most games are, you have to hit every single checkpoint. So you almost checkpoint. have to have kind of like a previous understanding of like the language of games in a way. But also which I agree that, have. yeah. Yeah, because in the moment where she slides under it, I had the question of like, oh, was she allowed to do that or not? My thought too. And I don't know that she even knew. She was, I don't think she knew the rules. When when she did slide under that, I was like, oh, okay. Well, maybe she's found a loophole. Like nobody said you couldn't go down the down the mountain. You know, and you she know, lost her horse. What was she going to do? And she lost her horse. So I'm like, okay. So she's thinking, even though she's she smart, would, yeah. she's smart. But then at the very end, when she's about to win, which by the way, if she was competing in these games as an eight-year-old, it'd be like putting an eighth grader in an NBA game. It wouldn't work. She would have lost immediately. But let's just but she go was with a prodigy, I think. Let's just go with she's a prodigy. Fine. And then Robin Wright shows up, and just as she's about to throw the lance through the final hoop, Robin Wright rips the lance out of her hand and throws it to the ground and goes, No. You're, you're essentially, <laughs> yeah. Like, you're not allowed to win because you cheated. Like you haven't earned it. Like you did it wrong. Yeah. And I'm thinking, but you didn't establish that. But and that's fine if you didn't establish it because races have checkpoints. Like you can't in a NASCAR race just cut across the field. Fine. But then the lesson she teaches her is, well, you don't have it inside of you. Like you haven't earned the right to win because you cheated. And I'm like, no, you just didn't tell her the rules. Like she's just disqualified. It's not that she didn't well, earn. We don't, we don't know whether or not she knew the she, rules. I imagine if she knew the rules that she would slide down pick up a rock and then throw it at her arrow. I don't, I don't know. Like, that's the thing is like, it I agree. It really irritated me. But believe it or not, I actually like the opening more than I did the first movie because I didn't like the first movie at all. I know. But I enjoyed the giant gold obstacle monument thing and the way that she navigates through it as the tiniest person amongst them all. But when I started to feel like meh about it was when they jumped into the ocean, like you said. Yeah. But also the fact that they start riding horses. It's kind of an anticlimactic final obstacle like it becomes a race and not about physicality at that point yeah. when you really think about it because all of them have perfect aim apparently like none of them miss their arrows so no. the stakes of that specific objective weren't established necessarily and maybe that's what it is it's like they could have fixed that entire scene if they had one of the horse riders miss her arrow have to go back pick it up and then like try to shoot it and then that establishes in your mind it is oh you have to hit you that. have to hit the arrow you have exactly. to hit exactly yeah, so they could have easily fixed that with a 10-minute sequence, beginning sequence, which you don't need that much of a beginning sequence. Movie's two and a half hours. Minutes. Why not? Let's just put in another minute. Put in another minute and establish something that clears up all the confusion. And look, when it comes down to it, it does communicate the central theme. Basically, that which is worth having must be worked for and not given or taken. Like, cheating, cheaters never prosper, essentially, is what she, Robin Wright's saying to her. 
Yeah. That, but to me, again, that's nonsensical for what they showed. Cause I'm like, Oh, she just didn't know the rules. Like just next year, she comes creative. Yeah, next yeah. year she comes back. She goes around the track. There you go. It's not that she didn't deserve to win this time. She just was disqualified. There you go. By not clearly establishing the rules of the game, it dilutes the effect of Diana learning the lesson that cheaters don't prosper because we are meant to identify with her in that scene. Mm -hmm. So when she does skip the checkpoint and is knowingly cheating, we should feel that tinge of guilt. But in the actual scene, we are both blindsided and confused because you don't come out of that scene having learned any lesson. If anything, you feel somewhat slighted because the rules weren't necessarily explained to you. But honestly, that didn't bother me as much as the rules of the stone. Of the stone. That made no sense. Yeah. Like, and the body thing really bothered me because it is really a, a, kind of a pivotal thing for her character. Like, why does his consciousness have to go into this dude's body when everything else, like the president of the United States asked for more nukes and they just appear? True. They literally turn to uh -huh. the president and say, all these nukes are coming online. We don't know where they came from. And it's like, that doesn't make any sense. Why and can't then, Trevor just be popped out of 1917 to here? Exactly. Mm -hmm. And just show up. Like, And I would have been completely fine with that. Yeah. But then also, like, does this guy not have a job, a family? That's what I thought. And then they made love in his body. Like, is that sexual assault? And then on top of that, what if he had an STD? It was the 80s. There was like an AIDS epidemic. Like, what is happening? But Andrew, we get to see Chris Pine again. But that's so ineffective. Is like, okay, like, but you're Andrew, just going to throw it away by just the pan of the camera of like, hey, it's it's Chris Pine. I honestly would have been completely Chris Pine is fine. really handsome, Andrew. We want to see Chris Pine again. Andrew, stop questioning the movie magic. It should have been like a... Man. It should have been like a shallow hell situation where Chris Pine is this fat dad body guy and everyone is basically like, you're with him. Like that would have been really funny. Don't put him in another handsome white man's body. Put him in a black dude's body. I want to see that. That's true. That dude was very <laughs> handsome. They did replace Chris Pine with just another handsome dude or another handsome dude with Chris Pine. When he walks into the party, I was like, wait, is that Chris Pine? They look so similar. They do. Yeah. Like in the trailer, I think they actually did have Chris Pine redo that scene. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Because I remember seeing Chris Pine in the trailer. I, I could be wrong. See, I like, again, this is me making excuses for stuff I like. I like seeing Gal Gadot and Chris Pine on screen together. And I thought the best moment of the movie, because you immediately know that, oh, to end this movie, she's going to have to let go of Chris Pine again. She's going to have yeah. to say goodbye to Steve Trevor. Yeah. He's not going to survive this movie. The ending scene where she, where they say goodbye to each other, even though I completely, it was so effective. No, I completely agree. Like when she walks away and he says, I'm always going to love you. Like, cause it is really heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. And the way that she turns around, it's almost like she rips herself. Her. She played that very well. And the scene in the apartment where he's talking to her and he says, we got to talk about this. Like if you found the one and you have to live forever, that is heartbreaking, you know, and that I agree was effective. I like Chris Pine. I liked half of the comedic moments with him. And then the other half, I was like, nah, I love when <laughs> when she's like, oh, by the way, there's radar. We'll get to the whole flying situation in a second. But oh, that bothers so, me oh, by the way, you know, there's radar. And he's like, well, shit, Diana. Like, I really like <laughs> I was like, oh, that's really funny. You know, <laughs> why? Why, can he, why does he know how to fly a plane when he was a man from 1917? How would he know how to fly a jet? Andrew, you didn't know that plane technology hasn't changed in 70 years? Oh, my God. All airplanes are the same. All you have to do is hit two buttons and then pull back on the joystick and then you can fly. Not to mention the fact that the propulsion methods are completely different. Like if he got into another propeller plane, then OK, maybe. And why is the Smithsonian leaving jets on the runway fueled <laughs> yeah. and ready to go? It's very convenient that they were able to find that plane. Be like, wow, we really happened upon this plane. <sighs> Good thing it was here. Unlike really Tenant, like where they have to crash a plane into an airport. I haven't seen it. <laughs> yeah, that was in the trailer. It's fine. What did you think of Pedro Pascal and Kristen Wiig? I love both of them. I really, I, and Pedro Pascal, when I was like, oh, he's going to be the saving grace of this film. I think he was. <sighs> I don't. I liked him a lot. He's clearly having a lot of fun. I love that he's doing Gordon Gecko on speed. And just like as a, as a con man, like a shyster televangelist con man, I love, I loved watching him. I liked his motivation too, which was not yeah. the typical comic book motivation of, I want to blow up the world. He wanted to, be a, a success in the eyes of his son. I was like, oh, that's very sweet. And again, took it too far. I, I legitimately felt bad for him and I almost wanted him to succeed in some way. 
but what is his motivation? Because it, be I don't think su- to be rich and successful and powerful. That's about as much as they give and it. That is such a weak motive. And his whole power is rendered useless after everyone has made their wishes already because they only get one wish each. Yeah. I mean, I, I get it that he's always been the underdog and he wanted to grant all the underdog their wishes. But then he turns around and then takes their health and their life force and safety. I mean, mm-hmm. because in the beginning it was it was established pretty strongly and I liked it. I felt bad for him. You feel his desperation. Yes. And you're almost like, oh, yeah, he's going to shove it in that investor's face. Those moments are great, but it just kind of fell short and went way too far to the point where I was like, this is almost cartoonish. Oh, you mean you mean the part at the end when Kristen Wiig turns into an actual cheetah? Uh, I love Kristen Wiig so much, but I didn't buy it. That was so weird. So weird, right? It was so bizarre and uncomfortable, and it looked like the movie Cats. And I really dug Kristen Wiig's performance, too. And I dug her motivation, too, of she's this underappreciated worker that gets kicked around. By the way, cartoonish introduction of her being kicked around, too. You know, she she drops the papers, you know, like like they do in 40s comedies, like because ladies can't carry papers. And then one of those dudes kicked her (laughs) and then left. I was like, well, no, like he, much. Walks, he walks past and then she turns to the guy at the counter and she's about to like comment on it and he turns around too and I'm like oh that's funny like she does that type of comedy very well but I agree in the beginning I was like oh that's kind cute. of an antiquated trope but then again it was in the 80s right. so maybe they're trying to fit the 80s movie cliches which I mean I'm fine with if they want to fit sort of the aesthetic of uh, the film well yeah I mean they did do a classic 80s fashion montage exactly yeah you no know, was it a little insulting to women carrying papers yes and to our intelligence because i'm like ah, really well, and like doing that one wish revolved around being able to walk in heels basically <laughs> yeah i mean kind of but i will say the scene where she beats up the guy that sexually assaults her yeah i feel like that scene was this cathartic symbolic moment very satisfying i mean just the way that it was shot and edited like the slow progression felt very intentional and that could just be the lens that i'm seeing it through because wonder woman really was kind of a beacon of empowerment with the all-female leading cast and the female director but something about that scene felt very different like we weren't watching the same movie anymore but it was also a very powerful scene was, and I, I really liked it it was a very effective scene because they did do a good job in a kind of insulting way of setting her up as very meek and setting her up to want to be powerful. Yeah. And that was a really great revengey way of showing that. And it was, that was in a very effective scene. That is the part of the movie that I did like. This is still in the hour of the movie. I liked the, yeah, the, middle, first the, hour middle, I, I the middle parts of this. Mm-hmm. I thought were extremely effective. No, I, I agree with that. Once it starts turning into outlandish cartoon nonsense, is when it lost me. As soon as he turns into the stone is when I was like, okay, you're, you stopped explaining things and everything you did explain in the first half, you threw out the window and decided to go a complete different direction. Because that is about an hour into it. That's about the midpoint. Yeah. It, yeah. This takes a long time to get to the actual villains of the story. I'm kind of okay with that. They're also not villains right off the bat. They have to kind of form into it. Mm-hmm. So I'm okay with that. But I also can't pinpoint the moment in which Kristen Wiig decides to be evil other than the fact that she comes to the realization that she might have to give back what she wished for. But at the same time, none of these people have the realization that the stone actually did the thing that they wanted it to do. Like Kristen Wiig never had the realization that the reason why she's getting all this attention now is because of the stone, other than maybe when she realizes she has superwoman strength. No, because there was that scene where they go and talk to the guy who can like read the scrolls or whatever. Yeah. And it's never like out... It's never said, hey, I have superpowers because of the stone. I think she does realize it, but it's never said. I think that's the moment she figures it out. Yeah, but then Steve Trevor tells Diana, well, what about your powers? Or that's why you're losing your powers. And Kristen Wiig doesn't flinch at that comment. No. She didn't know she had powers. And so I was like, wait, you're assuming that these people know these things. We don't get to see them realize it. Like, why isn't there a moment of recognition? And that's the thing that bothered me is that they were so concerned with the scale of everything that they didn't bother following any of the rules they set Mm -hmm. or even explaining the rules that they set. Especially by the end. Yeah. Again, it had me in the first half and it lost me just gradually. I mean, very, very probably precipitously, to be honest, not gradually. And like even in the White House, when Chris Pine handcuffs himself to Pedro Pascal, that would have been a perfect moment to wish 
but does he get a wish? Is he, is he a real person? A but he is a real person because he's in another man's body. True, and but so his, that would have been okay. But he's a weird manifestation of a dead guy from seventy years ago. Is he a real person? I have I no clue. No. <laughs> Oh God! Would you get HBO Max for this? Not for this, no, God, no. I'd get HBO Max for Lovecraft Country alone. See, and I think that's HBO's strategy. Like, if we can't get him with Wonder Woman, we'll get him with Lovecraft. All we'll get him Warner with Brothers. all of Warner Brothers, or we'll get him with the Flight Attendant, or we'll get him with this, that, and the other thing. There's just so much on there. It kind of doesn't even seem like this mattered. This shouldn't have been the pilot film for Warner Brothers to release on HBO Max. I think coronavirus force their hand on that though yeah no they, i don't think they really had a choice necessarily but they could have done tenant really i mean that would have been honestly if they released tenant on hbo max but i bet christopher nolan would have lost his beans he would have burned if, warner brothers to the ground and they would let him because he made that studio they'd have been like yeah right uh, we, under, we understand you want to you want to another batman batman how do, you, how do you feel about batman maybe uh batman does time travel <laughs> yeah, right but I think we can move on to... Oh, another winner. Another <laughs> success story of you know, 2020. I, I regret, because I would have rather you seen Midnight Sky than This was your it. idea, Andrew. This is your fault. I blame you. I literally was, was thinking this would just be an aside because I thought it was funny, not in any way, you know, like it, sh it wasn't a thing necessarily to me. It wasn't real. It felt like a YouTube video, honestly. Like, and like, that's it just exactly, felt like a long, yeah. That's exactly and, what I thought is we're moving on to death of 2020, the Netflix original mockumentary that I mentioned at the top of the show. It's just a bunch of talking head interviews, recapping the year 2020 in again, mockumentary format with interviews with fictional people that have fictional jobs that related to the events of 2020, the coronavirus played by pandemic, big actors. played by big actors. Samuel L. Jackson is in it. Uh, I would say if there's ever a lead in this movie, it's Samuel L. Jackson. I think he's in the most, the most of the movie, him and Hugh Grant are also in it. I think the most, I think he was just the most memorable. I think the British girl was probably in it the most. Oh yeah. 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 That's true. The redhead whose name I do not know. I, she is she one of the few. So she looks like Catherine Parkinson from the IT crowd, but it's not her. And I, I looked her up because I didn't know who she was. She's one of the very few non-famous actors, or at least one of the few people that you would not recognize. I think ultimately that you just summed it up correctly. It felt like a YouTube video that was extremely lazy. It felt like no one tried. And it's weird really? because, oh, I, I... Uh, this is what the, about it didn't you like? I, what would it, have you wanted to see more of great question it it's the this is the type of thing that i dislike the most in that it feels like it wasn't trying that hard like i said it felt lazy and it felt like they were just going through a bunch of like you know a bunch of old tweets and just trying to rehash jokes from each month i watch a show called the big fat quiz of the year it's yeah. a, uh, in england or it's an english channel show where they go through the year and talk about, you know, movies, sport, television, whatever. That's what this felt like to me, but just like they just sort of set up the camera in front of a bunch of people and did the news. Do you know why it probably felt lazy to you? Is that yeah. I don't think it was lazy as much as I think it was just easy. Yeah. 2020 is so easy to make fun of and talk about its absurdity, right? So it almost felt like, do you really need to do it? I mean, we've also been watching YouTube videos about this stuff for an entire year. So do you really yeah. need you know, like a full recap. I honestly think the narrator is probably the funniest part for me. I was going to say Lawrence Fishburne is the narrator. It was Lawrence Fishburne, yeah. I was going to say some of the wordplay that yeah. isn't, basically the stuff that isn't talking about what happened, mm -hmm. I like. Like Kumail Nanjiani plays a tech billionaire who sets up a bunker for himself. And the narrator yeah. goes, well, I mean, what did you think about the noise, you know, of 2020? And, and he goes, oh, well, the bunker's soundproof. So I can't hear it. I was like, oh, that's funny. And Kamal Nanjiani's a great comedian. So I was like, ah, oh, that's funny. Good good stuff right there. Good stuff. Well, and I didn't realize how much I wanted Lisa Kudrow to play someone in the Trump administration until I watched this. See, that seemed, that, that didn't work for me. I like Lisa Kudrow. But I think if they would have had her do it earlier in the year on like SNL or something, yeah. she played it so well. I think overall it was unnecessary right now. But it feels like something that's going to kind of reemerge in 10 years or something when we're all looking back on 2020. I feel like it was this historical account of the shitstorm that was this last year through a series of, like mm -hmm. you said, tweets 
and memes, essentially. It was a big commercial for Netflix. They have a whole thing about the crown in there. They have a Tracy yeah. Ullman playing the queen. I was like, take it easy, Netflix. Everyone's already watching this on Netflix. You're fine. I think the reason why I probably was more forgiving of it is because I wasn't watching it because I was wanting to sit down and watch something I was eating and I had to get back to work. And so I just wanted to watch something quick. And this was like the exact duration that I was okay with. You yeah, know, it was like an hour long. It was what an hour and 10 minutes or something. Yeah, like 70 that. minutes. And so I was like, I'll just throw it on. And it was, you know, some parts were funny. And some parts were like, eh, whatever. Tristan Miliati steals the show, though. She was she was really great. She, she, she goes was. up to 11, man. Oh, and I hated her with all my heart and I didn't want to hate Kristen Milioti because I love her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Steve Harrington's portion though. Oh hurts. yes. It hurts so much. <laughs> Cause we started the podcast during quarantine. I was like, oh no, that's us. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> us, sir. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about another Netflix property. Tell me about Midnight so- Sky. Midnight Sky is post-apocalyptic film where George Clooney, who is the last person alive after a cataclysmic event that wipes out the human population on Earth. It's just some sort of generic catastrophe. It's not explained at all, but it's assumed that it's nuclear warfare, like an accidental nuke launch or something. But the entire plot involves George Clooney, who is a scientist, trying to make contact with a spaceship returning from a scouting mission on a planet that could potentially become the place of refuge for humans. And the reason he's the only person left alive is because he's living in this science lab in the Arctic somewhere, and everyone who's working in the lab evacuated to be with their families for the end. But then over the course of the beginning, he discovers that he isn't alone on the base and that a little girl named Iris was left behind by one of the evacuated families. It's basically an amalgam of every post-apocalyptic movie and space movie that you've ever seen. You know what it is? It's I Am Legend meets Interstellar and Gravity. So is it like the road in space? Wait, are they in space or are they in the Arctic? Both. Wait, what? So it bounces between Clooney and the crew of the spaceship. Okay. Clooney's trying to reach the spaceship to tell them not to come back. And the crew is trying to make contact with Earth because they can't reach anyone, but they have no clue what actually happened because they're outside of kind of the range of communication, but there's no one left to communicate with them. And so they don't know what's really going on. Clooney has some type of cancer or disease because he has to do these blood transfusions every day. So his motivation to live is to basically save the last humans alive who are on the spaceship. I'll go into the spoilers right now. So check the description for time codes if you plan to see this. But I think the weirdest part about this is that while he's kind of on the base going through the motions, he keeps having these flashbacks to him as a young sort of ambitious scientist. And we find out that he discovered the planet that the space crew is coming back from. But the weird thing is that when they do these flashbacks of Clooney as a young man. Do they de-age him? No. They get a random actor and dub Clooney's voice onto him. What? And look, I will commend it in that it was trying something new. And I'm okay with that. I I was honestly that part. I was like, I, I should be put off, but I'm okay with it because it somewhat works because I'm unsure if the actor's doing his voice because it well, it matched pretty well. I'm pretty convinced that they just dubbed his voice over him, which was okay. kind of weird. And I'm okay with them trying something new. Because we, we've all, seen the we all know what George young George Clooney looks like. Exactly. George yeah. Clooney's been around for, what, 35 years now. We all know. I think I preferred this over the de-aging process because they had the footage. If anyone mm-hmm. was easiest to make younger, it's going to be George Clooney. Yeah. Anyway, in the flashbacks, you find out that he had a relationship with a young woman who got pregnant, but he was so obsessed with his work that he didn't care to know the kid or kind of be involved with the kid. So when he does find the little girl, Iris, he's kind of this reluctant father figure that grows to love the little girl, blah, blah, blah. But basically, the antenna at the lab he is at is not strong enough to reach the ship. So he needs to traverse the Arctic with the little girl to a weather station nearby or I don't know how many miles away. Of course. There was just so much that was off about this. I mean, this would have been a lot easier if you had seen the movie. But I'm having a wonderful time. <laughs> we should do this more of one of us just explains <laughs> a movie to the other one. Especially a movie like this, you really need to explain like everything to really understand how just weird it is. Because at one point when he does finally get into contact with them, Felicity Jones asks him what his name is. And Clooney says, Dr. Augustine, something, something. Uh-huh. And she says, Dr. Augustine, because he's, you know, the famous person who discovered the planet. And she says, Dr. Augustine, my name is Iris. And he says, I know. Wait, what? And this goes over her head. And she says, Dr. Blah, blah, blah. I went into this because, you know, my mom came home once with a moon rock that you had brought her. 
And I don't think she knew that that was her papa, which George Clooney, walkout dad of the year, didn't go out for cigarettes. He went out for moon rocks. Shut the hell up. She realizes that the little girl that George Clooney is seeing is not actually real. Oh, and she's that not she's real? A big figment of his imagination, and she Get turns out, out to be his daughter. And his motivation is to stay alive. His last act is to save the daughter he never knew. This movie's been a roller coaster. You have to set up all this to really like pack the punch in of that last scene of like what? Why? This has been this has been great. Here's the thing. I it was okay, like but it I don't think that it should have been 2 hours long. I think this is a 90 minute movie. I think it would have been more intriguing if a, a little girl was left behind. Yeah. And he basically had to be her father, but he's dying. And then maybe tries to find a way to get the astronauts to come pick her up or something. Like, if you're going to go outrageous, then at least do that. You know, like he he's obviously an astronomer or an, an ex-astronaut. So maybe that gives him his last mission in life. And he is trying to make up for the daughter that he neglected all of his life. I think that that would have been a very powerful film, which it was in a way, but it really he's just trying to warn his daughter to not come back to Earth. That's what the whole movie's about. I think this could have been good. I think if you really actually thought it out, it could have been great, but it really wasn't. It's based on a book, though. Yeah, it looks like it. I mean, that kind of premise, I don't think they would make if it wasn't based on a book. Now, that being said, Gravity did get made, and I think that was an original script. But that seems it was like an such original a, script. That seems like a big, such a big concept that it would not have been an original thing. You, you know what it was? It was likely a character piece in the book. Probably. Like an emotional character drama. And they took it and tried to make a high concept sci-fi with it. And it just didn't work because there wasn't enough there. And it was just, it wasn't original in those aspects. All right, let's move on to soul. I I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about this anymore. (laughs) Let's talk about emotional character things. What did you think of soul? This had one of the most profound effects on me that I think I've had from a film in a long time. See, I told you, I knew this would happen. When you told me you cried during it, I was like, I might die watching this because if Joe cried. Because I have a cold, cold black heart. (laughs) And the character's name in the movie is also Joe. Yeah. Which is probably, I mean, maybe that's just why I like it is because I'm just like, oh, that's my name. So it's me. Soul is so good. This is going to sound bad, but I didn't want to like it as much. Mostly because it was like, Pixar can't be that great. Like everybody loves it. They're raving about it. I'm like, well, fine. Because of my cold, cold black heart, like I said. And it won me over immediately. Before we go any further, I would say don't even listen to the summary and don't watch any trailers. Just go watch the movie. It's on Disney Plus. Easy to find. If you need more to go off of, though, we'll give you a summary now. But this was just such a beautiful film. Well worth the price of admission. Yes, definitely. But Soul is about Joe. Not this Joe, but Joe. It's about me. Pixar called me up and they were like, we got to make a movie about you. You're going to be a black man who plays jazz. And I'm like, that seems like a very loose interpretation of my life, but let's do it, Pixar. (laughs) He's a passionate jazz pianist struggling to make it. He's in his mid thirties and he's also working as a middle school band coach. Joe finally gets the opportunity he's been waiting for. After all of these years, he gets his big break and he lands a gig with a very prominent jazz band. However, moments after his successful audition and only hours before the first show with that band, Joe falls into a manhole and dies. Now, this happens at the beginning. It's not a spoiler. It's in the trailer. But the movie goes on from there. Go and watch it, please. It's got some of the best cinematography I've ever seen in a movie. Even though it's completely CGI. The the lighting and the framing are magnificent. Even the sweat on their faces while they're mm-hmm. playing. And the lighting and everything. But yeah, you can definitely see how far Pixar has come. But if anything, I mean, I didn't even focus on that so much as I was just in awe of the story because it isn't what you think it is. I think going into it and the reason why I was so apprehensive going into it is that I thought it was going to be another artist struggle story. And it kind of is in a way, its own way. It presented itself as an artist struggle movie, but the theme that is revealed was just so much more meaningful. Let's get into spoilers then. Yeah, let's get into spoilers. What was the part that got you? I don't remember the one. there was one specific part. I can't remember. I think it was just the ending when they both learn to want to live. You know, Tina Fey's character, which is more of an abstract concept, you know, she plays a a soul 
that is just uh doesn't have a body yet you know, called number 22 and she's so hesitant to go to earth to be born because she's afraid and she's insecure that she's not going to be good enough about stuff which again this movie isn't subtle in that way it's subtle in a lot of other ways but man does it just hit home just all of it. Their character, uh, Jamie Foxx plays Joe, and, and they bounce off each other really well. They probably weren't in the same room when they recorded, obviously. They weren't, yeah. But just the way the characters bounce off of each other, just the whole presentation of it, all of it. I loved it. I love the animation style, how they made the afterlife or bef- the great beyond and then the great before beings, these sort of two-dimensional amorphous things that just can kind of yeah. morph into anything. You know how they came up with that? No. So while they were developing those beings, they landed on the thought of making them these abstract line art drawings. And one of the production artists was making them out of wires so that she can show them in a pitch meeting. Mm-hmm. And while she was making the model, she moved her desk lamp or something and saw the way that the shadows moved. And so they oh, based the movement of those beings on the shadows of the wireframe. Huh. Did you assume, like I did, foolishly, when they set up Joe as a music teacher... Did you think his entire journey was going to be him learning to love to be a music teacher? Because that is what I think the lazy person would have done. And that's what I assumed they were going to do. Instead, they went a a much more profound route and just said, he's going to learn to enjoy life. I didn't because of his reaction to the principal offering him the full-time job. And she's like, yeah, you get benefits and a pension and healthcare." And his reaction to that, because it is consistent with the experience of anyone who's been a struggling artist, is just kind of like the fear of getting lost into your day job. Mm -hmm. I think what I was worried about, though, and what I think would have also been lazy is if by the end he just makes it back to his body and gets to live out his dream. And I mean, but they didn't make it that easy, which I appreciated a lot. Yeah. It's also interesting how many iterations of the story they went through. Like at one point they had him as this bitter man who never made it. And he's yelling at the kids in the beginning, but they were also kind of afraid that he would come off as too unlikable right off the bat. Well, he wasn't originally going to be a black character either. It wasn't originally even about jazz. When it became about jazz, then they said, okay, well, jazz is not a white person's medium traditionally. It's inspired by black culture. And so it should be about a black guy. Yeah. And it was cool because they brought on a panel of black men and women to consult on the film. Yeah. But I honestly felt apprehensive of where they're going to go with the story. I think overall they did a great job of taking something that is so intangible and then simplifying it enough to not alienate anyone's beliefs, but also translate it visually in a way that is so minimal and still full of life and emotion. Like my favorite scenes are the ones when they're in the flow area where they depict the feeling of being in the zone when you're doing something you love. Where Graham Norton is a pirate. <laughs> He's so great in this. Yeah, he is. That's one of the things that uh, I thought of too. Uh, when when they go back to Earth and when Joe gets transported into the cat and 22 is inside his body, Moonwind, who's the pirate played by Graham Norton, who's this, I mean, he doesn't look homeless. He kind of looks homeless, but he's kind of like a transient. He spins the the sign on the street corner. It implies that Moonwind can understand Joe as a cat, even though no one else can. But I was like, why can he understand him as a cat when no one else can? I was like, because he's in touch with, with the great yeah. man. Who cares, yeah, Joe? Exactly. Who cares? Yeah. Don't Don't worry about it. He's Graham Norton. He spins a sign and he can talk to cats. It's fine. Move on. I think I loved the depiction of kind of the zone state because there's this amazing book by Elizabeth Gilbert called Big Magic. And she had written it after she came off of the great success. So she wrote Eat, Pray, Love. And after the cultural phenomenon that it became because they made the movie and all that. But she wrote this directly after as sort of an antidote to the immense and kind of mounting pressure she was under, not only self-inflicted, but also externally. People were like, are you afraid that you're never going to reach that level of success again and all that? But the book is basically her thesis on creativity and then looking at it from the angle of spirituality and kind of relieving yourself of a lot of the pressures. I I highly recommend the book because it completely changed the way that I look at my art. But in the book, there's a great chapter where she talks about kind of the flow state. And she talks about the dances around the fires that the tribes would do in the deserts of North Africa. And that on rare occasions, like many artists or even athletes, a dancer would reach this moment of transcendence where it's as though they're somewhere else, like their soul is somewhere else. And the tribe, when they witness this, would chant Allah, Allah, 
as if to say God or a higher spirit had basically taken hold of this dancer's body. And then when the Moors invaded southern Spain, they took the tradition with them. And over the years, the pronunciation changed from Allah, Allah, Allah to Ole, Ole, Ole. And until today, you hear it during bullfights, flamenco dances, soccer matches. Even growing up, my mom, when she was listening to her favorite singer, and it comes to a part that she really loves, she would go, Allah, Allah, Allah. And I never made the connection between the two until I read that part of Elizabeth Gilbert's book. But I love that in the movie, they depicted that feeling of transcendence as a place where your spirit ascends into the beyond or becomes one with the universe in a way. It was just, it was really cool. They interweave some jokes in there too, which is important. Yeah, like it's funny when Tina Fey's like, oh, I've been messing with this team for decades and she throws a sandball at like one of the Knicks players and then he misses his shot and, you know, he's in his flow state. Exactly. <laughs> like those moments are really funny. And so I, I love that. And the, But then I also like that through that scene, they present the concept that I think plagues artists or really anyone with a passion, more than being blocked. It's more about when the passion becomes an obsession and then you descend into a dark place, which causes your soul to be detached or, as they call it, untethered, unable to flow in the flow space because you're weighed down by doubt and fear and losing touch with just enjoying how beautiful life really is. I mean, it really is just a blink of an eye and you don't want to lose that. And so just enjoy life. It's not your only purpose. If there was any way to depict that feeling, it was this. And you can tell they thought everything out in a way that was accessible to anyone because even Tina Fey's character represented the people that don't necessarily have a passion or as they call it, the spark. And so she feels like there's something wrong with her. And I love that this wasn't a movie that was only for the people that are passionate about one thing or artists. And this says that it's okay. That isn't what defines your life's purpose. It is kind of messed up, though, that when Terry, she's in charge of counting the souls and she's basically tracking down Joe's soul to bring him back. And she accidentally kind of kills a guy. But then he was back and she just messes him up and she's like, oh, sorry, man. Can we just forget about this? And I was like, that's the most messed up thing that (laughs) is basically ever seen. She's shown him the afterlife and shown him what death is. And then she's like, nah, man, it's cool. Don't worry about it. I was like, that's that's funny, but messed up. I really, really liked her story almost as much. I mean, I granted it was like a side quest kind of a thing, but I don't know why she just sort of snuck up on me. And I think it's because she, her purpose was to do this one thing. She counts the souls and then one is missing. She's like, no, no, you don't understand. I count the souls and I don't miss them. And then she gives herself an award at the end. <laughs> they make that joke where they go, here, Terry, here's the award that you explicitly yourself asked for. And she's like, thank you. I will take this award because she's also underappreciated clearly too. All of this worked for me, the whole thing. I think this came out at the right time where we all need a little perspective because, I mean, we all get caught up in our day-to-day lives. In the world of rise and grind and career obsessions, this movie sort of jolts you out of perspective in a way that was profound, at least for me. Does Pixar make movies for children anymore? I don't think they ever made movies for children. Toy I think they Story is a movie for children. Yeah, I mean, Toy Story on the surface level is a kids movie, but I think they make movies for the inner child in all of us. Because even Toy Story, we can all relate to. It is presented as a child's movie just because it is animated, but I also think that they have such a strong emphasis on story they always have from the beginning. Like there's this great book called Creativity Inc., which tells the story of Pixar and how it started because it started initially as a software company with no intention of making films. Hmm. However, in order to sell the software, they needed to make a short film as kind of a showcase demo of the software's capability. So John Lasseter at the time told his team, okay, well, if we're going to do this, the primary focus of the demo should be story because a great story has a big impact on the way that people receive something. So they started on it, but before they finish it, they get a last minute call for a slot that had opened up at a tech conference in a week or something like that. But back then it would take days, weeks, or months to fully render even something as simple as like a five minute film. So they couldn't fully render it. So while they were showing it, the color would cut out. There were full minutes where only the wireframe of the characters would appear and they're kind of freaking out. But by the end of it, the audience gave them a standing ovation and all these people were coming up to them and congratulating them. And they're like, well, but did it bother you that it wasn't done? And they were like, what do you mean? And they're like, well, you know, there were entire scenes that were black and white or the characters were just wireframes. 
And they're like, oh, I, I didn't even notice that. And it's because the story was so good that it didn't matter necessarily what they're seeing because they were more taken by what they were feeling. And that's always been their core principle is story first because good stories can appeal to anyone. Unless it's Cars. Cars is for kids. No, I agree with that. And I think that might be actually why it is their most criticized work. More than likely. It's definitely the least beloved, but it is the one that sells the most toys. Do you think Pixar makes movies for kids? I think Pixar makes movies that are important for kids to watch. I don't think that kids are going to understand Soul. I really don't. I don't I don't think if you sat like eight years old down and said, watch Soul, they would get it. Oh, my Toy Story. Because Toy Story is an easy concept. It's toys. They can talk. Great. Cars. It's cars they can talk. Soul is much dealing with much more heavy, heady, abstract concepts that I don't think someone, a child, is going to appreciate it at first. They just, I don't think, are. Even Inside Out had jokes and did have more bubbly kind of zip to it. This is the first one that really doesn't have that. I mean, it moves and it's got jokes and it's got, you know, again, zip, but the concept of it might be a little bit too big for kids. No, I I think that out of all of Pixar's movies, this is probably the most adult one because it also deals with very adult problems. Mm -hmm. Like a kid is not going to necessarily understand the conflict as much, but I think what they can take from it is like the moments where they do find their spark and things like that, because that is a, it's, it's an emphasis that our society puts on. It's like, you have to find your thing. You know, you have to find it early on. Yeah. Like even as a kid, people are like, what do you want to be when you grow up? So I think things like that, I think they'll they'll understand maybe not fully, but it will resonate in some way. And then maybe as they continue to watch it growing up, it will become more kind of it more. Was, it was funny when they first are doing the montage of 22 trying to find her thing. And so they, you know, go science and then she lights the thing on fire and then they go drawing and she goes, hands are hard. And I was like, that's the animators. If anyone's ever tried to draw and then they get to the hands, you get really frustrated there. <laughs> I love Soul. It's totally worth the watch. Maybe don't watch it with your kids because they might not get it, but it's still great. They'll still enjoy the jokes. The visuals. And the visuals. It's, yeah. still, it's really pretty to look at. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe some parents might not want to tackle the the conversation of hey what is death so early additional pixar i don't know i don't have children i think this is a good way to start that conversation as a young child to like understand because this doesn't make death as a kind of a scary thing because even when he dies you don't even realize that he actually died there is no real impact necessarily yeah. you know he just kind of falls into darkness if anything it's a uh, the poster child for being aware of manhole covers that whole sequence where he could have just died a bunch of other times yeah <laughs> But I think that wraps this week's Watchlist episode. Before we wrap up, we wanted to mention that we'll be changing the structure of the podcast in the coming weeks. So stay tuned for updates. If you haven't done so already, please consider subscribing on YouTube and liking and sharing with family and friends. And as always, we'd love to hear from all of you. Have you seen Wonder Woman, Death to 2020, The Midnight Sky, or Soul? Let us know what you thought. Did you agree or disagree with anything we discussed? If you have any ideas for a theme you'd like us to discuss or a film, TV show, anything pop culture, let us know on YouTube, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find all those links on channel8andahalf.com. That's channel8andahalf, completely spelled out, .com. We have new episodes every Thursday. Until next time, my name is Joe Galino. And I'm Andrew Hanna, and this is Channel 8 and a Half.